Welcome to Stream Detroit. I'm Mike McClintock with the co-host here, uh, Brad Fox. Today we've got a whole host of characters, including uh, Scott Monty. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, just going to talk about what's uh, what's ripe in the digital world today, and um, you know about the new consultancy I just founded called Scott Monty Strategies. Scott Monty Strategies. Yeah. How about that? How about that? So you're on Facebook, right? Uh, yeah. A couple times. Okay. Yeah, right. I've been there a couple times. What's a little bit about Scott Monty's strategy? So for, um, for, for the three people who probably don't yeah, know yeah. So uh, as you probably know, I spent six years as the head of social media at a little company called Ford. Right. I've heard uh, of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, but then what we did worked. See? Yes. See? See? Okay, I can that's retire. Right. That's a wrap. Um, that's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, when I left Ford last year, a lot of people said, oh, you're going to start your own consulting gig. And I said, yeah, I'm not quite ready. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd often thought about doing the entrepreneurial thing. Right. But uh, going from a Fortune 10 company to a sole proprietorship, that's like about as drastic a, a pendulum swing as you can get. Right. So um, I took a year, I was with a mid-sized agency, and I was doing a lot of stuff remotely here in the Detroit area. And I thought earlier this spring, why don't I just do this for myself? Right. Why am I wasting my time putting my talents to work for somebody else when I can go to work for myself? And that's working out pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Do you like it? I do, yeah. I really do. I mean, it's nice to, to be your own boss. Well, other than my wife. Right. She's, right. she's the real she's boss. Well, no, right. Right. You guys know that. Um, but it's nice to be able to decide what clients I want to take or what right. hours I want right. to work or mm-hmm. if I want to work at night or during the day or whatever. And, you know, you kind of be the captain Master of my own fate. of your own domain. Master of my domain. Lord no, of the manor. No pun intended. Yes. None taken. Right. Right. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, you know, social media. So when you were at Ford, six years in that role as kind of the social media manager, social media guru, I mean, it was, it was beyond that, too, because I remember you know, reading a lot of your articles and so forth, kind of out of national news, so obviously the, the social piece uh, worked very well. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, in the social media space that, you know, some people can say, well, social media is basically free PR. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. But then there's the other part of it. There's kind of the paid media, which is traditional buying television spots and radio and so forth. But then there's this thing called earned media. Talk to us a little bit um, without divulging any sort of you know Ford secrets about how you guys thought about that paid and earned piece of kind of this as, as it pertains to the social media world sure sure I think we're coming up on boy um, can't be fine yeah five years ago this week that we were the first company to reveal a vehicle on Facebook was that Explorer wow. that was the Explorer that was Ford revealed the Explorer you had 2011 yeah 2011 Explorer in 2010 on uh, on Facebook and in eight cities around the country, so we knew that we had to own we. <laughs> when I was they, we, they knew we they waff. had to own. Isn't there a phrase called we waff? When I was at Ford. Oh, that's good. I like yeah. that. We waff. There's we a waff. lot of people. I had no idea. Well, we waff. Um, <laughs> we waff. <laughs> the the idea was to uh, to take over the news for the day, to be the trending news story for the entire day. And we knew that that was going to come about partly by doing all the stuff we needed to do in traditional PR, working with grassroots media, working with local media, national and broadcast media. But then we had rented media, Facebook and Twitter and the like, all the stuff that we have a presence on but we don't actually own. We had our own sites, you know, Ford.com and the, the social 
uh, you know, the, I guess it was the blog at the time. Um, and then if you did it well and you were able to spike certain pieces of content with paid media to amplify, yep. uh, it became magic. And we knew that working hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the paid media department that we wanted to target all of the eight markets that we were in physically that day mm -hmm. and you know, bring up the, the, whether it's the paid search or um, even putting paid media against earned media. Right? So the, the local paper writes a story about you or the local uh, television affiliate runs a video, you can actually pay to promote their media instead of just your own. Right? So you get a whole mix of content that's pointing in the same direction at the same time in a coordinated fashion. That's really where the magic happens. And I would imagine it's a little bit tricky too to think about, you know, on one hand that a cynic might say, hey, you're just going for free stuff, which, you know, PR to a certain degree, that their role really is, you know, is, it is kind of the free stuff, but then it is a fine balance between advertorial, you know, what is quid pro quo, which is, you know, that, that concept is long gone, but it is, you know, it's, it is interesting to see how marketing and how people approach marketing has drastically shifted because of social media. Well, I think it's had to, um, and, and let's be clear too, that PR and even pure social, you know, uh, let's call it organic social, isn't free. Right. I mean, you, you hire the staff, you've got these hardworking people that, if they're doing it well, are crafting a story and, and getting other people to be interested in it for whatever reason. So you're pitching to a reporter or to a blogger, you've got to help them understand what's in it for them, you know, why it's going to make them look like a hero to their audience. Right. How, right? How's it going to sell papers? How's it going to bring in you know, viewers, eyeballs, exactly. users, et cetera? And, and getting the organic growth on a platform like Facebook, for example, it's not just a matter of putting your stuff out there and wishing or hoping that people will pick it up and share it on their platform or on their timeline. And, and that's the ultimate compliment, right? When somebody takes your content and just shares it on their own timeline, right? That they're proud to feature your content on theirs. So you can't make it seem like an ad. You have to make it seem like they're the first to know, right? They're the smartest person in the room. They're the funniest person in the room. Right, there's got to be some exchange of value there, yes. right? Yes. Now, that kind of organic reach only goes so far. It's, it's when you take the paid media and start putting it against it. And, and putting paid media against organically proven content. You know, when I was at Ford, we walk. We walk. <laughs> See, that's, that's going to catch on. You kids out there, yeah. you know, you, you pay attention. You heard it here first. That's a hashtag. That's better than haptic high five. <laughs> <laughs> I do it every time. It's a haptic hashtag. That's right. There you go. Um, we used to get calls from the Facebook sales team and they saw our content. And they said, your content is performing really well organically. You should spike it with some paid media. And we go, well, if it's doing well organically, why do we need to pay to have more mm -hmm. people see it? And they said, because it's proven to appeal to people. It's the kind of stuff they want to see. So you want to make it available to as many people as possible. So mm -hmm. they're, they're conceptually, it's one plus one equals three or something like that. Yeah. By doing by kind of complementing. So those that's two, a good formula there to sort of put things out organically, see what's catching on a little bit, and, and then boost that. And Facebook on, does that automatically now. You'll see the yeah. pop-ups if you run a page mm -hmm. where they say, this content is performing 85% better than your normal content. Click here to boost it. Mm -hmm. And you can throw five, 10, $15, $150, whatever you want, whatever you have a budget for, uh, to boost that particular content. And mm -hmm. it's, it's more manageable than ever now. 
They make it easy for like the interface and easy. easy. Yeah, absolutely. No, oh, yeah. absolutely. So let me ask. They make you, it easy for you to spend money. That's right. On their platform. That's a, that's a, that's a, guy, how does that work? Idea. We're not selling you anything. We're helping you buy. Yeah. You, you kind of blew me away with what you were, the first thing you said was we want. You didn't say well, you know, the cliche. We want to make it go viral. You said we want to own the news for a day. That's a pretty big goal. It was. How a very many big people goal. in the world have actually tried to attack? it from that big of a perspective and and look that's not going to be something that every brand can do i mean that's something that a fortune 10 brand right can say you know that mm -hmm. has the national appeal and by the way at the end of the day uh in tracking the statistics we were uh, a number one trending topic on twitter mm -hmm. that morning and we were the number two uh, trending topic for google for the entire day wow the only reason we were number two is because that was one of the days that Lindsay Lohan was being admitted to or released from some facility. Right. So, it's either one or the so, other. One of those two. She's either so you always have coming out. It's, it's, it's a, a week where you show. don't have to compete with that other than. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, and that goes to tell you what Americans value most. It's, it's entertainment. You know, they're. That's just a less, great point. That's a, that's a profound statement. But. Well, look, just. Just last night, you had this shooting in the, uh, the Louisiana theater. Yep. Um, so, so there's gun violence uh, that's at the top of the charts again. You've got this Sandra Bland uh, woman down in Texas who uh, was found dead in her jail cell after a questionable uh, mm -hmm. stop. And yet, the number one trending topic right now on Twitter? Lindsay. Hulk Hogan. Yep. <laughs> Hulk Hogan. Hulk freaking Hogan. Yeah. Right up there. And that's, that's the reality of the world we live in today in a mass market. Sad but true. Hulk Hogan. You got nothing after that, do you? I mean, <laughs> no, like, I mean, you just kind of blew my. Look at all the holsters on down here, right. check it out. Right, right. Exactly. Give me these guns. It's like a post-apocalyptic Sunday, 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 Sunday. Wow. Silverdome. We'll right. slay the whole seat, but you only need the edge. Edge. Um, so we're we knew this was going to go down this rabbit hole, but so related to social media, you know, in the kind of paid media space, there's lots of ways to measure success, right? It could be. TV, you know, how many GRPs from a social media perspective, how were you guys, what were measurements of success for, I don't need specifics, but you know, a person who would be in your role in a large corporation, how do you guys think about the success metrics? Well, I think you've seen it evolve over the years. Initially, when we didn't really have many metrics to go on, it was, it was likes, it was comments, it was shares. If you want to use Facebook as a proxy for the rest mm -hmm. of how you think about social. Um, and when you think about those, those three metrics, to, to just pause there for a moment, um, they increase in order of importance and of true engagement with your fans, the people that you're getting to um, take some interest in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. The like is the bare minimum that you can expect out of anybody. It is a digital grunt. Like this. Mm. Pawn, right? right? It's like the lowest. Mm. I do that, right? When I like things, that's you, you do grunt. I, I thought I was we got to get that hernia checked out. Uh, That's probably uh, where. Yeah. Wait a minute. How about the measurement is grunt? You know, just. Uh, uh, already, right now, there's already three new startups in Silicon Valley based on that. <laughs> yeah, we stole our idea. Wait, we we gotta we gotta patent it's, this really it's, quick. It's grunt without the U. Right. G R N T. It's a silent, it's a Check it out, kids. It's <laughs> the next time. Like or maybe it's a new law. Grunt. But then you got the comment. So the person that's actually taking the time to. Type in a comment, as long as it's not first, 
right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, that's something more meaningful. But if you've, like we said before, if you if you've gotten somebody to take your content and share it with their friends and family, now you've hit something, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's the early days of measuring um, um, engagement and and success metrics. I think as as it's been growing, you know, you've seen um, better platforms and better uh, better engines and dashboards behind Twitter, behind uh, Facebook, um, and I think Instagram is next about what this actually means. Um, how many people are visiting your website? Um, and if you've got Omniture or Google Analytics installed on your website, you should be looking at it from that end as well. Where's the traffic coming from? Where am I seeing the most boost? You know, and ultimately, even though social media is very difficult to measure in terms of ROI, it's not impossible. Right. But it's an upper funnel thing. It is not a, you know, I tweet and you buy kind of thing unless right. you're doing some kind of e-commerce or whatever, right? It's about building awareness. It's about building relationships with a set of consumers, right? And getting your brand at the top of their mind. And ultimately, if you follow the, uh, if you follow the formula, they visit your website. Maybe they submit an email address, right? That's lead gen. That's a valid way to measure how successful your social program is. And similarly, I would think, you know, from a targeting perspective, because, you know, now with this fad called the internet, when we all, we can all accept that it's a fad, targeting an audience or audiences is fractured. You can pretty much reach any person. You can reach, you know, left-handed coffee drinkers in Topeka if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I would think that social media also has a big strategy. Instead of just, you, you probably chose Facebook for a reason, whether it was just pure reach, or in other executions for your social media uh, kind of campaigns, if you will, you probably targeted other either uh, social media outlets that would be more aligned with the audience you're trying to reach. So I imagine you have your own targeting strategies as well. Yeah, and each platform is going to offer uh, the ability to target audiences differently. You know, both Twitter and Facebook, and we're spending a lot of time on social here, guys. Um, and and there's, other, there's other sites out there, obviously. But those two sites, rather than just thinking of them as a mass marketing tool, you know, because marketers spent way too many years figuring out how to get as many fans as possible, how to, how to get followers, how to get fans. All right, now you've got a million. What, what does that matter, right? right? And it's not meant, social was never meant to be right. a marketplace where you simply put up old-fashioned marketing techniques, yes. billboards and blasts and 30-second spots at yet another audience. Mm -hmm. It's about building a relationship. It's about building trust. It's about connecting people with each other. It's, a, it's about an exchange of value if you're doing it well, right? So I think as, as the platforms have evolved, they've provided value back to the marketers. So you've got custom audiences with Facebook and a similar one with Twitter, where you can take your email database, dump it into the platform, cross match as to who's actually in your network and who's out of your network, and then target at the appropriate groups as you wanna try and uh, either build up your network or reach people who aren't uh, part of your network already. Cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, so that's, you know, the social media pieces, you know, it's continuing to grow and evolve. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your days are certainly going to be different now with Scott Monty's strategies. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you, what kind of services and solutions that you're providing for, for your clients. Sure. Um, so it, it's it's primarily strategy work, and it, it obviously delves into digital and mm -hmm. crisis communications and executive communications. Well, my goal is to help, in particular, agencies, mid-size mm -hmm. and large agencies, get better at what they're already doing. 
So they don't necessarily need me to come in and craft a strategy for a client or for them, but mm -hmm. to help kick the tires, so to speak, on how they're doing and are they thinking about the right things as they're approaching major brands. How does a big brand function? How does a big brand think about this stuff, right? And to help them with uh, pitching new business, to help them with existing clients, perhaps in verticals like automotive or digital, mm -hmm. and simply take my experience from the past you know, almost decade or so and, uh, and, and put it towards their services. In addition, on the brand side, um, you know, I had a lot of experience uh, working up the, uh, the, the social and digital transformation at Ford. We spent an awful lot of time talking about the cutting edge, or the, the, I should say the public edge of social, the marketing and communications elements of it. But when you think about the applications to a large enterprise in particular, how do they grapple with it as an entire business? How does it affect their legal department, mm -hmm. their IT departments, their HR, right? How are they onboarding employees with an expectation that, right. you know, there's, there's some sort of collaboration going on and there's this seamless flow of data from the outside world to the end. And any team within the company that needs insights is able to get it, not just the marketing team, not just the PR team. That sounds like one of the biggest problems with you know what used to be called enterprise architecture now is that's such a slower process that has existed before and yeah. now this stuff happens so fast and there's so many new feedback loops into it that it's almost like you need a different kind of thinking about it. Whereas enterprise architecture maybe kind of grew out of finance, accounting, those sorts of things where they built those systems and it was all internal. Right. Well, now you've got these external endpoints all over the place that are interacting with your with your with your enterprise and it's fast. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Periscope. It's like instantaneous. Right. How do you how, how does an enterprise today do that? How do they cope with all the speed of change on that and figure out how to use all that feedback coming from outside? And actually use it internally. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, right? Because they've got a lot of uh, a lot of inputs coming in through customer service, coming in mm -hmm. through marketing, um, coming in through uh, IT, coming um, in through the car. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll talk about that in a minute because there's some stuff that's been coming in through the car this week. <laughs> a little bit of things came um, in that shouldn't have. But, but basically, you've got a CIO mm -hmm. um, whose job function has split almost into two functions. One is the infrastructure, the enterprise legacy mm -hmm. architecture that provides the base of yep. what the company needs for your financial systems and your security and all the rest. Mm -hmm. But then you've got this um, necessarily flexible CIO, or maybe it's a chief digital officer that's thinking mm -hmm. about the external components and the you know, agile development. You know, right. we, we've heard CIOs talk about agile development in the past, and that means going from a three-year work stream to a one and a half year work right, stream. Right, and right. what we need is somebody who can respond like in 24 yeah, hours iterate. to a periscope or right. you know whatever the new thing is. So you've got you've got a digital function that's either coming up on its own or through the CMO's office. You've right. got a CIO who's now thinking about long-term strategy, thinking about infrastructure, but has to accommodate you know this new flexible digital world that his colleagues are bringing forward. Yeah, how do they do that now? I mean, that is a, that is a, that's not insignificant and it's almost like a future shock thing where the speed of the change has to be happening faster Absolutely. than they can respond to it now. So are you getting, it's almost like you have a, you know, two, two enterprises going now, the super fast, agile, lean startup almost attitude and then the old stodgy part of it that's still running, right. you know, COBOL 
but those things have to coexist now. How do you become, how do you not get Amazoned in a borders world? Well, that's, that's the challenge. But look, Walmart, Always. Walmart has, uh, has managed to figure it out. You yeah, know they I mean? have, yeah. That's, they're, a, that's they're, a heck of an AI company. Uh, well, and, and they should be, you know, mm -hmm. with, with all of the data that runs through there, all of the purchases right. that are made. They're one of the largest companies uh, in the world. And they're still able to, you know, when Amazon uh, last week announced its Prime Day, yep. Walmart said, hey, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to undercut uh, Amazon's price. And it's going to be more than just a single day. Right. We're going to we're going to do this long term and a commitment to our customers, right? So they have the infrastructure and they have the the basis to do that, but they realize that they're staring at real competition when it comes right. to Amazon. Right. And it's the companies that are taking that competition seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, just like the big three should be taking Uber and Lyft and all of the yes. ride hailing services seriously. Yes. Yeah, they still have to use cars, but. This provides a disincentive for consumers to go out and purchase a new vehicle. Right. Right. So what is what are the Fords and the GMs of the world doing about that in the face of it? And I know Ford, for example, actually is doing something. They're starting a program uh, over in the UK, mm -hmm. um, almost like a, a competitor to Zipcar, right. uh, where people can uh, rent a car by the minute and then drop it off wherever when they're done with it. No fuss over the ownership. They're getting the technology and the fuel economy of a brand new vehicle, but none of the responsibilities of, uh, and the long-term costs of ownership. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, a, to me, that's like a massive, it's almost like a paradigm shift in terms of, and I, I, there will always be car enthusiasts, right? I consider oh, sure. myself in that bucket. But in that scenario, and even, you know, I was in San Francisco this week, I, when I travel, I never use a cab anymore. I just don't, because I think Uber and Lyft, you know, not to pick yeah. one or the other, they're just so much more convenient. You got a guy, he calls you, says, are you Brett? Right, he picks yeah. you up. So therefore- And then on the back end too, if you if you uh, integrate it with, um, uh, you know, Concur or TripIt yeah. or any of those, it actually integrates with your expensing system. It's, so you don't have to take a picture of your receipt anymore. It, it's all happening yes. automotive, uh, automatedly. Yeah, and it, where I was going with that, uh, with that point is that consumers, so I don't really, I used to get preoccupied with, you know, like as a loyal driver to Hertz. It's like, how am I gonna get my Hertz points? I don't care anymore. I just don't care. And interestingly, the airlines are now picking up on that because now you can <clears throat> link your Uber and your Delta points together. So whenever you, so they're, they're on it. But my point about the enthusiast piece is that over time that could erode some of that, you know, I really care about Ford or GM, or I'm a real big enthusiast. You might see some waning of that. So that's like a huge implication on how people think about if I'm gonna buy, do I need to buy it? Do we need to have two cars in right. the household? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I don't know, I, I think there's there's so many fascinating <laughs> things that are going on. That's one of them, you know, automated vehicles is another one. Yeah. That's another area that's, um, to me, very, very fascinating. Mike and I talk about this on the show quite a bit. <clears throat> now University of uh, Michigan, even though I went to the other place um, in East Lansing. Interesting, they have their own little city. Community they college? Have a, what's that? The community college? No, it's the green and white one. Okay. Pretty sure it's a green and white one. Uh, but anyways, you know, interestingly, University of Michigan now has this city for automated vehicles to do testing and so forth. So, a lot of fascinating things that are going on. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the clash of analog cars, if you will. And then we can segue to where I know all three of us might want to talk about the car that got hacked recently. But it's this clash of you know old Detroit or old iron mm -hmm. with digital technology, and they are together now. 
Yep. And now you're seeing things about safety and security. Chrysler just announced the the, uh, the recall based on the events that happened earlier this right. week. 1.4 million cars? 1.4 million cars were called based on this hack that, it was a planned hack uh, with uh, the writers of Wired Magazine. Yep. Um, and I know that had happened at Ford a few years ago, but they actually, they took the dashboard off the car, they connected up yeah. through you know, a wired connection in the vehicle and they had the, the laptop in the passenger seat as they hacked it. This one was done remotely and it was done over the Wi-Fi network of the, through you the connect, Jeep. Right? Through Uconnect, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a major hole. You know, these automakers that have, they advertise, oh, you can have a, a car with a Wi-Fi network. I never understood that. I'm bringing my own Wi-Fi network into the car, right? And my kids don't need to play games that desperately. They right. can't take a car ride without Wi-Fi. You know, I use this, and whether it's to, you know, a, a vehicle that connects via Bluetooth, or whether it's a, um, a let's call it a dumb vehicle, one that doesn't have all the whiz bang stuff, but you can still take a, um, a component like you guys know automatic mm -hmm. um, I'm on their advisory board mm -hmm. okay and they've got this unit that you plug in to the um, the car yeah the reader into the PCU under the dash and you have an app on your phone and it's basically like Fitbit for your car right so you can tell what your true mileage is you can tell whether you're doing hard brakes hard stops you can remember where you parked it at the mm -hmm. airport stuff like that they even have a setting on there where if you have kids who have just gotten their license you can track where they are what they've been doing mm -hmm. and you know junior comes back and you go well it says you're going 65 miles an hour through the center of town here what's up with that right but the goal there is to take any vehicle from 1996 to present and turn it into a connected car. Right. right. Now, in my mind, that's a lot safer than buying a car with a Wi-Fi system built mm -hmm. in that is potentially hackable like we saw. Right. Now Chrysler is calling these vehicles back to do a software fix to patch the hole. Well, how long before that gets hacked well, too? Well, that's the problem. That should not be on the same system right. as vehicle control. A absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, can't, I can't imagine that the brakes connected to the internet is a good idea. <laughs> or steering. I mean, the other thing well, is the firewall. everything. Well, there's two things about yeah. that that I thought were, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Scott, too, that I thought were irresponsible, either by the media and or primarily the media. And I'm picking on the media a little bit, but number one, they did that on public roads. That's true. That yeah. was that was awful. Yep. That so that's true. number one. I mean, it's, there's one thing about responsible <laughs> disclosure of a security vulnerability like that, but they, you know, the article itself was talking about how there's a semi a semi bearing right. down. At, well, what about the semi driver in the well, right? right. Or the yeah, that's a good point. That's, I thought that was incredibly irresponsible. I mean, you can find a test track. I mean, yeah, pretty much you can rent one out for a day. The other thing was in Ann Arbor. Right now you have one. Right, go there where it's a, where you're supposed to do that stuff. But the other thing was, um, you know, they I think. Chrysler, the Cherokee got unfairly picked on, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. because there's... That's not the only vehicle. It's, right, it's exactly. The, it's there's, the 1500, I mean, it's everything. GM has built-in Wi-Fi. That's one of their big selling points now. So it's not the only car out there that has it. So I think, I don't know if it was... I think what happened was when Wired came out with the story, I think the other media, it's like, oh, Jeep Cherokee, it's a, you know, it, it got unfairly picked on. But I just <laughs> think the irresponsibility of them to do that on public roads was, was pretty bad. That's a good the point. The car ended up in the yeah. ditch. I mean, Shame on Wired. Yeah, Wired. And I love Wired. I do. Well, you can forget that sponsorship. Ah, we blew it now. <laughs> we really like yeah. Wired. Well, that's awesome. Fast companies coming along. We'd like to thank our sponsors here at Grand Circus. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got... 
Guys, Have you, what do you think of Grand Circus? This, this, this is my, this is my first time in the building here. Really? And aside from the uh, the people mover going by, it is a phenomenal place. It's a great facility. You know, they have free coffee and they even had free water. Free Good water. People. How about that? Where, where are you going to get free water in Detroit, people? Huh? Clean. Oh. It's not even been shut off. Wow. Right? Wow. That's that's great bass. <laughs> <laughs> So to be fair, you weren't really uh, capping on Chrysler. I was, but now I'm not. <laughs> you were really ripping on Wired, but not really. Not no, because they're probably going to be a sponsor. I, I'll just call them. They up. called uh, during the break. Yeah, they tweeted also. Right. There's there's a hot tweet. Isn't that what they call it? It's called, tweet? yeah. Uh, we know about Chrysler's history of tweeting. Yes, we do. Um, we, they've had some challenges there. But yeah. that's another, that's like a double-edged sword. tweet from the car. <laughs> I mean, in a person in that role, I mean, you know, Segwaying back a little bit to you know your role in social media, sure. it can be very dangerous. You know, what, how do you, you know, some people don't realize you know where the that fine line is between you know personal Twitter account and professional Twitter account, or where that button is on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> Which button? The one that says personal and corporate Chrysler. Right. You know, the one that has the the, the f bomb filter. Oh right, right that Oops. oh that button. Yeah, but that's like that's a challenge. I mean, you got to be got to be very, you know, there's like a heightened level of consciousness, I would think, in that capacity where you're you're very uh, forward facing, very public facing, mm -hmm. and sometimes it, it comes back to to nail you. Well, that's why I think there's a couple of things to to think about here. One is, do you really want an agency doing that work for you? Yeah. You know, we talked before about the importance of building a relationship with your customers or with mm -hmm. your community base. Wouldn't you rather that? people in-house are doing that. I mean, they're the ones that should own the relationship. But can they go fast enough? I mean, is your, is your enterprise agile enough? Well, then one might have to question why they got into this space in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Um, or their true level of commitment to it. Right. Okay. Um, are they fast enough to pick up the phone for customer service calls? Excellent. Yeah. You know, it, why is this any different? Okay. Um, the other is, if you are in a position like that, where you are representing a company um, online, uh, on television, in print, mm -hmm. wherever, you need to you need to realize that you need to act in a certain way. And if that way isn't um, isn't consistent with your personality, and you have to have this on camera or online personality versus a real personality, mm -hmm. you may have a problem with the profession you've chosen. Right. Mm -hmm. right? To me, one of the reasons that I've been fairly successful at what I do is because you get the real me day in and day out, no matter whether I'm representing a company, or, uh, an agency, or just myself. That's, I think, what people have appreciated all along is they get the real deal. Mm -hmm. It's genuine, right? It's like, like any brand, right? It's right. like you want that brand to be genuine. And I think over time, brands that have been, who've kind of stood the test of time, are the brands that are genuine and they don't try to mm -hmm. be something that they aren't. Exactly. But it's a and great point. It shouldn't matter if you're you're tweeting personally or professionally. You sh it should be it should be transparent. It shouldn't matter. You should be able to right. be in the wrong account and still be but, still be able to own that tweet. But you should know that there are certain topics that you probably want to steer clear of if you are a public representative. Religion Politics, religion. Right. You know, I was I uh, did a uh, a keynote last uh, two weeks ago in Dallas right. uh, on crisis communications, mm -hmm. and somebody asked me because I think it was the week after the uh, the Supreme Court gay marriage decision. Right. She said, uh, how should companies be responding to this whole gay marriage thing? And I said, well, 
truthfully, unless it's part of their DNA, unless it's something they've already expressed, there's no need to go and weigh in on this unless your customers are expecting it from you. Mm -hmm. Chick-fil-A, for example, they might have a very strong opinion. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and they've built their brand on, you know, being very, they're closed on Sundays. They don't open on Sundays because they believe that's the time you should spend with your family. Day of rest or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so that's, that's consistent with their brand. But, you know, uh, for, I don't know, for Oreo to come out with their, you know, uh, rainbow stacked uh, cookie, mm -hmm. it's cute. But is yeah, it maybe Nabisco or you know the parent company there. I think Mondelez yeah, owns yeah. them. Yeah. Um, if they have a, a particular progressive stance on mm -hmm. uh, family medical leave and uh, recognizing right. same-sex marriage, great, consistent right. with the book. Why, right? why exactly. take a stance? But, but if but it's a cookie. Yeah. Yeah. What do I care what a cookie thinks about gay right. marriage? Right. right. So let's shift maybe back to uh, we were talking a little bit about you know safety and security um, with respect to all the technology that's going into cars. And you know now there's you know car-to-car -car communication. And I think you know beyond the the hackable hackability, that certainly has to be it, hackable that, hackability. Hackable hackability. That's another hashtag. That's from the Department of Redundancy Department. The haptic hap. The haptic, the haptic hackable hackability. Hackable. That's a mouthful. That's a hashtag of haptic hap. Easy to oh, say is easy to say, but that's that was, hashtag that's haptic hackability. Hashtag haptic hackability. Hackathon. I think we should have a hackathon. But the, the so safety. You know, <laughs> interestingly, whether it's airbags or ignition switches, mm -hmm. that is that ladders to safety. But you know. The way I think about automated vehicles, I think it's terrific because ultimately, you know, yes, enthusiasts are going to be, no, I don't want the car that's, you know, run by robots and so forth. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a switch. And I'm going to be very simplistic that says, you know, do you want to automate or do you want to drive yourself, right? Like the autopilot button in airplane cockpits. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly right. It seems to work. Hmm? It seems to work. Generally? Yeah. Generally. Yeah, but, that, but here's the thing, you know, there's so much enthusiasm right now about uh, driverless cars and I don't think cars are ever going to be completely driverless mm -hmm. you know I'm maybe you know as, as Google is experimenting with free ride which which is its uh, competition to uber mm -hmm. and it's a driverless vehicle um, but because of and, and we'll see how this evolves because of the insurance industry and liability yeah. right and, and we've got uh, automakers trying to grapple with this right now if your automated or semi-automated vehicle goes nuts and you're not at the wheel, mm -hmm. right? or you can't control it. It's Who's responsible? It's liability. Is right? it you? Is it the automaker? Is it the no supplier? Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a complexity that needs to be grappled with. The other thing is just the reality that of the 11 accidents that the Google driverless car has been in right now. Which mm -hmm. the media was very quick to point out, there's been 11 accidents with automated right. vehicles. And All caused by other drivers right, right? who are not in automated vehicles yeah. so we are a generation or two away from seeing a world of all automated vehicles because you're mm -hmm. going to have somebody that still has that yep. old-fashioned car they're still hanging on to their 2008 corolla or whatever it is right you won't see the automated vehicles at the woodward dream cruise no unless they have an alternative universe, Woodward Dream Cruise, of right. just automated vehicles. We right. can't get to our flying cars that we're supposed to have had years ago right. until they're under. Right. Because I, I don't want somebody flying over Forget my house. it. Well, I've got to drive in front of my house. That's the point, is that you need to be able to have the 
uh, the interoperability where you can go from automated to yes. driver assisted right. or, or driver controlled technology. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think there's going to be varying degrees of is it fully automatic? Are you driving? Are you ripping around the racetrack just to have some fun? But there's you know very practical applications, right? I mean, think about grocery shopping, for example. Mm -hmm. You don't need a big SUV to go grocery shopping in the future unless you go to you could order your groceries in, in online a, and send your car in a world right or it doesn't even have to be a car it could be a box with four wheels and you just say here's my list put program it in with your app it goes out to kroger's comes back with your stuff and you're good to go isn't that what drones are for uh yes so that's yeah. or or you get a big retailer to experiment with yeah. that but that's even further mm. out. But I, I still think that's, you know, I think that's where it goes. But ultimately it's like personal choice, but there's other things like if you're too tired Absolutely. to drive, it's like, oh man, I probably shouldn't. I'm sure we've all, yep. except for me, I've never done driven at four in the morning before. But I mean, if you're too tired and you shouldn't be driving, that is a great use case for older people who shouldn't be driving. Yep. Now they have an opportunity to still have that sense of freedom, mm -hmm. but go where they want, pre-program the, the address and off you go, or people with disabilities. You know, there's a lot of real practical applications for it. Um, and enthusiasts too, just flip the switch to, I wanna do burnouts, right? Yep. You make a good point though too about it, is that it's not just whether or not there's, there's a consumer adoption problem right. with it, which there may or may not be. It's who's gonna make them. So maybe, maybe it has to wind up being some startup that is doesn't care about the risk because I mean you know Ford Motor Company or GM or, or Chrysler or anybody they have a lot at stake to start putting out automatic automated uh, driverless vehicles right maybe it's gonna wind up being you know the Tesla version 4 or something like that and assembled by you know tier 2 tier 1 2 3 of the of the auto suppliers where they're right. putting together like you said a refrigerator on wheels it's almost like it's it's its own driving uh, drone industry why does it why does it have to be in the form factor of a car or the right. steering wheel exactly but if anything, it's uh, something for the tort lawyers to fight over in the future. Right. And I right. think that it's yeah. going to be that. Maybe, maybe that's why it won't be, you know, the, the current OEMs that do it. Maybe it'll have to be some crazy, you know, knucklehead startup guy yeah. who doesn't care about the risk of it. And doesn't, you know, and if, it's, if it fails, it fails. But at least it's not going to take down a Fortune, you know, five company. Right, right. Yeah, but I think it's like the big one is going to be legislative. It's, it's consumer adoption is one thing. I, I think, you know, personally as an enthusiast, I love driving the car myself, but mm -hmm. there are times when it's like, I don't think, you know, you press the switch right. and, and off you go. Um, but, you know, yeah. but it's great for the bar industry and bad for the trucking industry. Mm. Well, that's the other one. I, trucking, I think that's a massive application, right? If you can have like a dedicated lane, like the drivers we know that are, you know, using substances to keep them awake, whether it's caffeine or otherwise, you know, that's... Well, and right now, um, due to uh, regulations and laws, truck drivers can only be behind the wheel for number like of eight, 10 hours a day. Yes. And right. that limits the distance they can go. Yes, right. Right, but what if they could do that, do a shift, go sleep for a few hours in the cab, it's still driving, yes. right, and then take over if you're on these long stretches of highway. Right. Sure, right. Now, the other thing, I think we spoke about this one time before, think about the implications of that concept to the railroad industry. Hmm. I mean, that now they've got, oh, wait, wait a minute, what does that mean if, if freight is being shifted away from rail mm -hmm. to this system where it can get there probably faster, right, and cheaper potentially? What are the what are the people who are you know railroad industry? What is that? What are, how are they thinking about well, automated things? And all of this flows over into 
what does the employment uh, situation look like in the future? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're automating a lot of these driving jobs, right? And I heard some estimate the other day that sixty percent of all jobs require some sort of driving as part of the right. the function. Whether you're a delivery man or a taxi driver, whatever it is, sixty percent of jobs in this country have to do with driving. Right now, you're taking that away as and replacing it with an automated thing. Where do those people go for a living? You know, how how do they start to make some meaning out of their lives if their livelihood has been taken from them? If you're going to automate driving, what can't you automate? Well, right. I mean, that's that's. The, but there's other. It creates its own ecosystem, right? Which in turn creates jobs. Whether or not that's going to be a job that's for people who are drivers, whether it's you know not college educated or otherwise, but those types of things that have massive implications for an industry like just transportation in general, it's going to create its own ecosystem. I don't know what that looks like, which means it's going to create jobs. But does that mean? Yeah, it is a great question to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, technology people are all for it. That's great. Everything's, you know, everything's, everything's programmable now. But, you know, at some point, there's a lot, you know, either you're being, it's, it's almost to the point now you're either telling the computer what to do or you're being told what to do by the computer. True. Or your car's driving itself. Yeah. We just talked ourselves out of automated vehicles. That's it. It's just, a, yeah, for society's sake. I think of, you know, the, the air, airline pilots, you know, what has happened over the last say 40 years in the cockpit, right? There used to be, basically with every jet plane, and I even think with prop planes, there was four people in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And now it's down to two. You had, you know, navigator, co-pilot, um, mm -hmm. the other guy, and the other guy, right? Whoever those four are, right? Pilot, co-pilot, engineer, engineer, engineer right? right? The guy touching the buttons, the oh, eyes, so you've got the machine. Victor Basta. Right, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now there's basically two guys, and now there's even talk about why are there two guys, right? You could have mm -hmm. one guy, and you know, with all the automated systems and other systems, yeah, the planes, the, the runways land the planes. I think the pilots are just there to make everybody feel good. Right. <laughs> but that that probably could get it, theoretically engineered out of there because you know, air. A lot of the accidents that do happen on airlines, I, I don't know the numbers, but it's a big number. It's like ninety percent of airline accidents are because of pilot error, so human error, right? So. There's a huge safety benefit. Same thing with, with automated transportation in general, right? So mm -hmm. cars are going to be more efficient. You know, if you get two cars on a freeway, you program your thing, everybody gets in the fast lane with all the communications between radar, sensing, fuel economy is going to be better, safety is going to be better. How, what does that mean to insurance companies, right? But then you always need well, Sully on the plane when it sucks in the, uh, the ducks into the engine. You've got to be able to... That's... that's that, exactly. my that, kids, they don't have a program. My kids that. watch this, uh, this program called Why Airplanes Crash. Oh, right. it's a time story. As somebody who travels a lot for work... <laughs> While well, they're it, on an airplane, right? It, yeah, yeah. No, that's the in-flight programming, please. It freaks me out. Yeah, right? I can't but watch this. I've, I've learned a few things while watching it. A lot of these accidents that took place in the... Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, as they've done the investigations, they've actually pinpointed mm -hmm. um, structural improvements to make to the plane or engineering uh, improvements. Mm -hmm. And there was one where an engine, I think there was a hairline crack in the, uh, the center part of the fan in the engine. It blew apart mid-flight. It hit the, uh, the rudder on the tail or the, the elevator on the tail and blew through all three hydraulic lines. That was, yep. that was right? Sioux City. That was United mm -hmm. DC-10. Yeah, so you've got the pilot, actually both pilots there, who are trying to recover the plane and, and, and get into a flyable mode. They had um, 
There's a flight instructor. There's a flight there was instructor. There's a flight instructor, right. He came on and he was manually firing the engines as they were going into a landing. And yeah. an air traffic control comes on and goes, uh, which runway would you, would you like to land on? He goes, I got enough to worry about right here. You tell me which, which yeah. runway I should land on, right? That, and, and they all survive, or the majority yeah, of them survive, yeah. because of the pilot's expertise, yep. right? So you got to ask yourself, in a, in a driving situation in the future, if you've got a kid that learned how to drive with all of this automated stuff around her, mm -hmm. yeah. how is she going to know how to control the car if there's a malfunction yeah. or if something goes wrong? Right. I mean, think about the, the notion today between manual and automatic transmission. Because mm -hmm. a lot of kids, you put into a, a manual car, they're like, uh, I can't do this. Yeah, right. Well, what is this thing? <laughs> hey, and play it. But given the experience and given the ability to actually drive themselves first and become expert drivers, right. then an automated or semi-autonomous vehicle becomes less of a danger later on. Right. Right. The second point is to your to your point about insurance. Right. This is I think this is a hallmark for the insurance industry. This is a a, a real pivot point where you can go from generalized pools of individuals to actual behavior. You, Brad, we know exactly what your driving habits have been over the mm -hmm. last three months based on extracting the, the vehicle data. And you see some of that stuff that get plugs into an ECU, like the, is it yep. progressive, we can plug that thing in. Yep. Yep. Or the automatic app, you know, those yep. guys may so the uh, taxation may end up doing going to that too now. Yeah, right. You know, hey, you got electric cars, we can't tax you at the pump, we got to tax you by the... By the kilowatt, by the or, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that, I mean, that, I think you're right about the insurance piece, it's, but then it's like the big brother piece too. Is that too big brother-esque or is it opt-in where a person says, you know, I think I'm a pretty safe driver. I mean, I like to tip into throttle, throttle every once in a while. So I mean, I, I probably don't want Well, to I think what it does is it, it incentivizes better behavior yes. behind the wheels. You know, when you have uh, teenage drivers in the house, the rates always go up because of their irresponsibility. Well, mm -hmm. what if you could demonstrate that you had a teenager who's actually a very responsible driver? Right. Right. And you're giving the, the insurance company the data to make decisions based on how they mm -hmm. price your claims. And that's probably true. I would say that most of them are. It's just the ones that aren't are far more likely to be messing yeah, some stuff I up. I know. But it, but most kids, you know, especially when they start driving, they're hey, I'm gonna, you know, take this seriously and be responsible. Uh, not me. But, um, <laughs> well, because you're not a teenager. Well, when I was, you know, but luckily my car only went like 33 miles an hour. That took like an hour to get to that point. But what was I talking about? Zero to 33 in 60 minutes. That's right. right. Yeah. This is the part where I hope my insurance company isn't watching. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the future moving forward, we've got all these connected cars. We've got so much technology happening. How is it that these companies are able now to figure out even how to, how to uh, process it all? You know, from a, from an enterprise standpoint, how do, how do they do that now? They've got literally feedback coming from connected cars. Yeah. What do they do with that? I mean, how do you move your enterprise, your company, your business faster enough to catch up? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's it's amazing the amount of data that we go through every day, whether mm -hmm. it's vehicle specific data or other machine specific data, uh, GPS related, um, app specific, social mm -hmm. media. Uh, web traffic. I mean, there's. We don't need more data. Yes. You know, and this talk about big data. We've got plenty of data. We just need to figure out what the hell to do with it. Right. At this point. With lots of data. We have no information. We, I'd like some small insights out of the big data. That would be right. a good start, right? Okay. To, to start actually looking at how these play together, how you can spot trends. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's where um, 
I think the, the, the next five, 10 years of, of the world, uh, data analysts and data artisans. Okay, I like if, that. If that's we can, a great, uh, coin a phrase. That's a great phrase. Yeah, because you need people that obviously under, understand data mm -hmm. and how to manipulate data and how to interpret data, but they also have to have a side of them that understands the softer side, that understands strategy, that mm -hmm. understands um, how people like to be talked to. Right, and they can stitch those two together to say, okay, here's what it means, right? And there's going to be different levels of that within the enterprise. Mm -hmm. you know, here's what it means for a product development team is going to be much different than here's what it means for your marketing team, mm -hmm. right? But somebody that can stitch those two together and actually craft insights out of data is what we need. So there, you think there's consultants now and agencies and places like that who are sort of you know working in the data artisanry uh, mode? And that that you know they've got to sort of outsource that a little bit as they kind of bring that in and learn. Is that where is that where businesses are going now? They're trying to figure out how to how to how to have people closer to the customer be able to interpret that and react appropriately. Yeah. No, I, I I think so, and I think that's why it's so important for uh, practitioners of this craft to be fully conversant in the mm -hmm. technologies that they're trying to make these interpretations on. Right. You know what does it mean when you know, there's actually a whole subset of, um, uh, of, of analysis that's going on uh, with emojis now. I, I advise a company called Zignal Labs, mm -hmm. okay. uh, and they do a lot of um, analysis of uh, consumer uh, chatter on the web, on uh, the social uh, sites, etc. They're ramping up their capabilities to analyze emojis and to create a little more automation in, um, in the whole uh, sentiment analysis wow. area, right? Because sarcasm mm -hmm. and emojis and all this, uh, you know, almost visual uh, uh, communication that people have, the, mm -hmm. the cues that you pick up on, right. um, that's not properly interpre interpreted by machines. Mm -hmm. right? You have to have that human intervention. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can automate more of that, Right? And then you've got people on the back end that understand how to process all of this. Mm -hmm. That's where we need more people like that in the future. So that's, you know, the data artisan uh, emoji poo analyzing growth hacker. That's my favorite emoji. Really, that's all I ever sent, right? Um, we need an emoji analyst who is on fleek, Bay. On fleek. You heard it here first. <laughs> on fleek. F-L-E-E-K. It's a word. It's a thing. You know. That's exactly. Right. On point. Is that so? Is that is that the new is that the new growth hacker? I mean, you know, you you see that coming out of the out of the startup world where you know they're trying to they're, they're really close to it where they they understand the technology, they understand the speed, they understand you know the metrics that they're that they're sure. doing, but they don't have a whole big a bunch of things behind them that they have to then interpret that and then try to bring along a lot of that. How do you know our companies now trying to figure out how to how to let it at a lower level, at a more customer-connected level, make those decisions or make those interpretations? I mean, is that, I think this is the part where we throw the word millennial in, and, you know, are they, are they well-suited for it? Is the Uber generation... Well, that's a good, it's a good question. And, um, you know, sometimes it, it takes one to know one, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's nothing wrong with guys of a certain age, if, if I may generalize, um, being able to understand, 30 year olds. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> being able to understand um, what makes millennials tick. Mm -hmm. um, but let's be clear too that they're 
there is no such thing as a millennial. I mean, right. they are not homogenous. Right. They are about as diverse as any generation that we've ever seen, mm -hmm. right? So to, to think that you've got them nailed if you've got one person's perspective on it, right. or because you've hired a really smart millennial, that right. doesn't represent the whole, the whole generation, right? So you, you got to get smart about it from a macro standpoint to be able to drill down and understand some of the micro decisions you need to make. Absolutely. And so uh, maybe wrapping up a little bit, so how do you, you know, with your exposure to you know, social, you know, you spent several years at Ford, you've, you've seen a lot of trends emerge over the last couple of years specific to kind of the digital media space, if you will, in general. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you saw emerging, see emerging, and if you take a gander into the, to the crystal ball or the crystal haptic high five, um, what, uh, what are some of the things that, that you're seeing that, uh, that are fascinating or interesting to you? Um, well, first, if I can do a shameless plug, you may. I look at trends every week. Oh, look at right there in my in my this week in digital newsletter. Who put that up there? What? Uh, how about that? Wow. It's, speaking of on fleek, I mean that was it was right there. Thanks, babe. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I think some of the things that we've seen um, are obviously uh, a rise in visual technologies um, or visual communications. So obviously Instagram, everybody knows about, but we are seeing more things being communicated with pictures and videos than we ever have been before. And there, I forget what show I was listening to recently. I was driving around in the car, listening to a podcast. Stream Detroit? No, no, never mind. No, I'd be watching it and then I'd be crashing my car because it isn't automated. Um, this guy was saying he and his son will sit down at the, the breakfast counter and uh, his son will have, uh, maybe he has a small tablet and this guy has his iPad and they're reading the same article on ESPN.com or they're looking at the same topic on ESPN.com. He's reading the article and his son is watching the video. Mm -hmm. And his son's attitude is, why would I read something when I can have a video tell me the same thing, right? So you're seeing a lot more uh, commitment to visual communications. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of that, and this is the one that really interests me uh, uh, recently, is you're seeing the rise of mobile streaming video, Meerkat and Periscope, mm -hmm. which is what everyone primarily knows. And in an age when 60% of television viewing is off cycle, is, is, is done in a delayed way, on your DVR, you know, you stack those episodes up and then you binge watch or whatever, unless it's a reality show or a sports program. Mm -hmm. Those a are still the two, program, right? those are still the two types of programs that people want to see live, right? But the rest, they can watch whenever. And there's such a fuss being made about live streaming mobile video, where I can guarantee you the camera people are not all that professional, and you're basically looking at one long selfie mm -hmm. for however long they're on the air. I, I can't explain it, and yet it's taken off. And maybe it's because it's so simple, it's so easy to use, it's integrated with everything else we've come to know in the last five years. You know, we were doing streaming video five, six years ago at Detroit, at, uh, at Ford, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it, was, it was either through Quick or through uh, Livestream.com, but it wasn't available on a mobile device, right? right? And now suddenly it's, part of the consciousness. So to see what people are going to use those for, I think we're going to see more 
um, more breaking news coverage on Periscope. As long mm -hmm. as Periscope is tied closely to Twitter. That was the hottest thing, at the, the highest rated thing on Periscope today was the shooting last night. Yeah, see, there you go. Live, live, live from the shooting. Twitter is really good at breaking news, at media stuff, at, in, in some cases, sports. Um, Periscope is gonna follow the very, very same uh, trail. The only thing is, the major sports organizations, the NHL.coms and mm -hmm. MLBs and everything, they're going to have to figure out the rights usage, you know, mm -hmm. with regard to live streaming video in their stadiums. Mm -hmm. um, I think during the uh, during the Stanley Cup Finals, the NHL said we'll allow you to use Meerkat and Periscope, but only up until the game starts. After that, done. How are they going to do that? I, I have no idea. See, the challenge is. But why if, would they if you if you that? get programming, if you're watching something on Periscope from somebody, you know, up in the bleacher section or up yeah. in the, the nosebleed section, right. and you're getting a shaky video, but why, how is that why, any is comparison to what you're getting care? on? You're right. I mean, why does the NFL, NHL care? Because they have networks paying them lots of money. That's, yeah, but that's if I true. want to watch it in high def and actually get a camera angle that's going to be good, I'm going to watch it on a... I mean, professional TV. One would, and but, one would think that could be a drive to get more people to buy exactly. the subscription stuff, right? right? Right. That would be like somebody, well, oh my gosh, I forgot this game was even on. Let me turn off Periscope and go watch right. the game. But in, Brad, a, in a gigantic 55-inch screen, in high def right. surround sound, right. blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, and I don't listen to the guy right. talking and slurping his beer anyway. But, <laughs> but Brad, to your point, I think... That's still the mentality that they're stuck. It's, right. and it's I don't think that's necessarily bad, but it, it, is, no. it is the reality right. that they've got these big ass contracts. I swore, I said, but um, but they've got these really big contracts that they can't, you know, that that are kind of legacy deals, and they're five, ten year deals. I mean, you probably know better than I, but a lot of these big programming deals, and they got sponsors. You know, they got all these things sure. that are considerations. Cool technology. But I think ultimately that, that technology is going to evolve in some fashion. And I think we'll probably see very quickly going into the fall season how sports teams are going to take advantage of live stream video. Mm -hmm. You know, how they're going to integrate it into the rest of their yeah. broadcast. You know, and, this is and where we need Terrell Owens to have a fall. He needs, to, he needs to make a comeback just for the periscope factor in the end zone. Right. He's going to have one everywhere. He's just going to pull it out. Of, is he the guy who pulled one out of the... the pulled the Sharpie out. Right, he can pull, sure. he's going to pull out the yeah the one that protects the goalpost. So the, yeah. the padding pulls one out of there. Ridiculous. Yeah, he would be great. He would have him everywhere in the stadium. Right. Yeah. Periscope on the front of the helmet. Actually, I yeah. just saw to, I uh, yesterday. Yesterday, I saw that Meerkat uh, is integrating on iOS devices only with GoPro cameras. Oh. See, there. Right. GoPro there. has done a deal with Meerkat, so. Yeah, but then everybody's gonna look like everybody's gonna have instead of an L on their forehead like I do, they're mm -hmm. gonna have like a GoPro right up. That's where we're going. It's all gonna be just cameras on our forehead. Right. That's the that's it. That's how it ends. When you see the cameras on the forehead. You remember Justin T V yep. from two thousand six yeah, sure. or so? Yeah. You know, that's how I Justine got her start. Um, wearing a baseball cap with a camera clipped on the bill of the of the hat and then some enormous backpack for the, the battery and the, right, right, the, right. the streaming and, and everything. Um, and I think it was a, uh, uh, I think she had an Ebdo car or something like that. Anyway, that's where it started. That's mm -hmm. where you had people walking around literally with a camera on their heads. So probably not too far off as, the, as, as uh, Skynet takes over everything and the cyborgs rule us all exactly so that's the that's how we know is when everybody's got the camera on their forehead exactly that that's it that's the end of it and when people say i'll be back 
you know that's that it. the end is nigh. Right. If you want to live, come with me. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott Monty, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mike. All right. It's a good time. Nice to be here. Yeah. Let's thanks, go. Uh, Haptic high five. Let's go have a haptic high five and drink some whiskey at Cornerstone Barrel House. That sounds like a great idea.